following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. This story is, um, in some ways, similar to many accounts in the Gospels uh, where Jesus is seen exercising power and authority over demons. Um, It's unique, though, in in that in this story, he is so vastly outnumbered. Um, And and, uh, certainly, you get a picture in this story that uh, the demons are not just a, a, a sparse scattering here and there, that they come in sizable numbers. Uh, and, and we also get a real picture of the spiritual battle uh, that Jesus was encountering in his day and his age uh, as he confronted these, these demons and these evil spirits uh, repeatedly. And in this one, uh, definitely you know, off the charts in terms of the scale and magnitude as he confronts this legion of demons. Um, what do you think about demons? If you're honest, you know, what is your kind of take on demons? Um, let me give you a little background on my own history. Uh, for a, much, a good portion of my early Christian life, I gave very little thought to demons. Uh, I didn't run across demon-possessed people very often, pretty much never. Um, really never experienced uh, in tangible ways in my own life uh, that kind of demonic encounter that I recognized. Um, and, and I had heard, you know, as a teen and in college of people who had been demon-possessed, but mostly I thought they were just mentally unstable people, and, and likewise, the people who tried to cast them out, uh, right? Until uh, I, at one point in my spiritual journey, I ended up being unemployed, mostly like Jonah, running away from God's will. And God had work for me to do, but I really didn't want to do that. So I was unemployed. And I ended up working for a guy named Bob Larson. You may have heard of him. He was real popular back in the 80s. And he had this uh, live call-in two-hour radio talk show where all kinds of crazy people would call in. And, and he was kind of known um, as an expert in demons and in casting out demons. And he'd written all kinds of books. Uh, I really didn't know much about his ministry. I knew who he was because he, he's from the Denver area where I lived. And, but I didn't know a lot about him or his ministry. Got a job because I was unemployed. And my, my task was they had a, you know, the two hours people could call in and talk live to Bob Larson. In fact, it was called Talk Back with Bob Larson. And it was mostly a lot of screaming and shouting and arguing on the radio. But you, you could also um, uh, call in. And they had this call center. And my job was to answer calls and counsel people and we had everything from, you know, deeply troubled people, suicidal people. Um, we would try to connect them with help and counseling in their local areas. Um, and, and part of this, I would have daily conversations with people who were demon-possessed. It became to be a kind of a routine thing. Like, oh, how many demons did you talk to today? Ah, oh, just a couple. Oh, I had seven, you know. It was like an everyday occurrence in this crazy environment. And uh, so it forced me to start thinking about um, this issue more. And, uh, um, and of course, uh, in, in my time, I've encountered books on, on deliverance ministries, and I've been exposed to deliverance ministries, and that uh, ministry with Bob Larson was very much about that. And, uh, you know, there's kind of two camps. 
One, we just pretend demons don't exist at all, and we live oblivious to their power and influence over our life. Or uh, a lot of people go to the other extreme, and they would see themselves in this, this spiritual battle, the spiritual warfare, where they're saved, and then uh, Jesus armed them with, with guns and ammo, and we're in a direct conflict with the demon forces. And this is kind of Bob Larson was definitely in this camp. Uh, that, you know, we're outfitted for this spiritual battle, and we, we really engage them. I mean, God gives us the power, but we are called to engage these, these demons, right? And they're everywhere, apparently. They live under chairs. They're in, they're in records. Apparently, demons are quite fond of vinyl because they were in records. Uh, you know, since the whole digital age and the whole downloading, the demons are confused with that one, apparently. But, you know, I mean, you'd hear the people would say, you know, oh, you open this record and you play it and the demons come out of the record and they invade your house and they invade you. And, and so there was a lot of ministries that sprung up, you know, kind of ghostbusters, deliverance ministries who would uh, be experts in, in casting out these demons of everything from people to chairs to lamps and records. Um, and uh, uh, to, to do this, you have to have special knowledge about Satan and his enemies, and uh, most of these people who in, engage in these, and if you're, if, by the way, if you're in deliverance ministries, you can talk to me afterwards. I'll probably make you mad on this, but it's okay. I'm sticking with the Bible. And, and in, in deliverance ministries, all the secret knowledge and information is not in Scripture, right? It's a knowledge you have to gain, and, and uh, oftentimes they would talk with the demons, and they would seek special revelation to know how to, how to engage the demons and how to talk to them. It's real important to get their names and their, you know, their email address and their phone number and their social security number and all this information so you could, you could get the upper hand and you could wedge out these demons, chase them off, right? And you had to be careful because if you didn't do it right, you know, you could leave a back door open and they'd sneak around and come back in. Or if you skipped one and missed one who's hiding under the couch somewhere, you know, all kinds of problems, right? So that's, that's kind of how they do this. Um, uh, one, one guy who had been involved in this kind of ministry shares this story. He says, uh, when I was in this movement, this, you know, deliverance ministry, we were seeking to purchase property in one of the suburbs where we lived. Uh, because of difficulties with the purchase, we decided to hold an all-night intercessory prayer meeting, which is a good thing. Uh, during the middle of the night, someone got a revelation that a demon called Manitou was ruling over the city, keeping us from buying the property. This demon supposedly ruled because Native Americans had practiced their religion there at one time. So we were instructed by our leaders that we needed to cast out the spirit of Manitou over the city so that we could claim it for God. Uh, the su- successful finishing of the purchase proved that our prayers had been effective, which con- uh, co- consequently reinforced the idea that we needed special revelations to cast down these demons over other cities. Right? That's kind of how it works. Um, well, so you know, here's kind of the, the spectrum of things going on. You just ignore them. You know, spend your whole life consumed as a demon hunter. Uh, what are we supposed to do with all that information? Well, um, my plan is just ignore the issue, right? Just let the demon busters go out and bust the demons, and I'll just mind my own business. Uh, but in Scripture, as we look at Scripture, and as Jesus often engaged these spiritual forces... What does it tell us or uh, teach us about how we are to view uh, the, the forces of darkness, Satan and his emissaries in the world, and, and what are we to do about it? Are we to just blindly ignore them, or are we to uh, engage them firsthand and whack them down? Are we, what are we to do? 
Well, uh, I think Jesus gives some good examples in this story of a strategy and, and a way to look at and think about demons and their influence in the world and our lives. Um, so let's look at, uh, first point, the mission of demons. Uh, Jesus sails across, and if you remember last week, he was sailing across on his way to this region, Gerasenes, when, when they encountered this terrible storm that almost sinks them, ironically, into an abyss. And Jesus, with no trouble, speaks of the storm and calms the sea, right? He shows great power and authority over the forces of nature. Uh, from there, he, he, he gets to the other, other shore, and it says in verse 27, when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When Jesus saw, or when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Uh, for many a time it had seized him. It, he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Uh, one, one thing that we have to learn from this story is that demons are real. right? They're not just crazy people, as much as I would like to ascribe it to that. They're not just those who are mentally unstable. They're real. And they have influence and power and effect in the world and in the lives of everyday people. And their influence and their effect, their, their uh, power over people can be sometimes incredibly strong. As in the case of this man, he was completely under the domination of the spirit. Um, now, obviously, not all people uh, come under the same degree of influence and control and power. Uh, but two things we know. One is that uh, all lost people, all people before Christ, including you and I, before we came to Christ, were absolutely under the power and influence and control to some degree or another of evil forces, of demons and of Satan. Uh, and we'll see in a minute how that uh, played out in our life. And of course, oftentimes we're not aware of it because we're not quite as oppressed as this man. You know, we're not breaking chains, we're not living in, in tombs, we're not uh, running around naked. Uh, we and, and demons are quite smart, right? And they know how to play the game. Uh, so it may not be as obvious to us that we are under the control and influence of, of demons, but uh, Scripture is clear that before Christ, we are captive. We are in bondage to the evil principalities and powers of this world. Second thing we know is that all true believers, by very definition of what, it, of what salvation means, is we have been set free from that bondage. To some degree, those chains have been broken, and we are no longer um, under the control and domination of those, those spirit beings. However, Scripture is also clear that we're not completely free from their influence, right? Every Christian, I don't care how long you've been a believer, how strong you are in your faith, we are subject to the attack and oppression and influence of, of demons and evil spirits, right? They don't give up on you just because you are in Christ. Uh, their their efficacy, their power against us is reduced, but they still want to destroy your life, and their mission for you has not changed. It's just a lot harder for them because Jesus gets in the way, as we'll see. 
Scripture puts it this way in, in 2 Timothy 2, 24-26. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind, speaking of, of elders and deacons, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may, speaking of opponents, God may perhaps grant those opponents repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And get this, last phrase, what I'm after. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And in the context of of Timothy, those enemies that, that Paul is talking about were people in the church. Now, whether or not they were true believers or not is a, is a huge debate. But there are people who had, who had professed faith in Christ and were leaders in, in the church that Timothy was, was, was leading. Right? And Paul says that those people have become, in the snare of the devil, captured by him to do his will. So Paul has a theology that's very clear about believers falling into the hands of demons who can... Um, have great power, control, and, and, and influence over their life. So what is the mission of these, these demons? And I don't want to get into how they do this or what, but, but in this passage it gives us a clear picture of what they do. And it basically could be boiled down to three things. Uh, the first one is their goal is to erase the Im- image of God from our life. We were created by God uh, by, uh, with dignity of his image, a rightness of mind and self-awareness, the liberty of being self-governed and lords of creation. Uh, We have freedom to choose. Uh, We can enjoy fellowship and companionship with others. Um, And and that's how God made us. And uh, whatever all it means to be created in, in God's image, it is much of what makes us human, that gives us personality and choice, that makes us lords of this earth. Uh, as the stewardship God has given to us. Uh, It is the work of demons to rob us of every gift of God and to strip us of all that his image uh, is in us, that his image bears in us, right? So if you see this in this guy's guy's circumstance, at one point he was a normal, healthy human being, but in this story he is unclothed, running around naked, right? He's wandering in deserted places, People, his friends, and his loved ones have to cage him like an animal and chain him up to try to protect him and try to keep him from going completely off the deep end, right? Uh, but he, uh, he breaks loose from those chains, and he escapes, and he flees, and he lives outdoors in every way like a beast. In fact, uh, when you compare him and the pigs, the pigs are really a notch up, right? Because they're still beasts who are living out their God-designed order, whereas he is not. He is worse than an animal, lower than the pigs who roam the hillside. Right? And that's, that's Satan's goal for you. It's the, it's, the, it's the mission of demons in your life to strip away uh, those marks of God's image in us. Um, his life is completely dark and empty and void of personality. Right? All that has been stripped away. It's interesting, uh, and just, just to illustrate how sin does that. Right? When we give our lives over to sin, which, when we cave into the influence of demons and the temptations they throw at us, there's a very real sense in which it reduces our humanness. Um, a Stanford University psychologist, Philip Zombardo, 
was doing uh, research on the effects of the Internet on, on young boys and teenagers, teenage boys, uh, specifically in terms of pornography and gaming addictions. And he wrote a book called The Demise of Guys, Why Boys Struggle and What We Can Do About It. And his research concludes that all, the, all those hours spent in front of a screen, not just watching porn but playing video games too, is leaving men in the dust socially, unable to relate to women, and unable to function in society. Right? In other words, it's draining the humanity right out of them. We found that guys are failing in school and with women and becoming socially isolated. Often these boys turn into young men who are completely unable to carry on even a most basic conversation with a girl. Right? The, the basic dynamics of human relationship are being sucked out of those people uh, when, when they fall into those bondages of Satan. Right? Um, so that was, all that was the image of God was being obliterated of this man. His free will, the ability to think, to live in community, to be a part of social order, to express himself in speech, art, and music, to play, to worship, to enjoy life, are erased from his existence, and he's reduced to less than an animal. Right? And that's God, what, what the demons want to do in your life. Now, of course, uh, we pray that it doesn't go to that extreme, but that's, what, that's, that's the mission of the demons. Secondly to drive us to depression. Um, uh, It's interesting. A lot of people are enticed to to demonism and to the occult um, by the promise of supernatural power. And we don't know how this guy got where he was, but perhaps that was an attraction for him, that he would have power, right? And in fact, he does have power. And it says that, you know, they chain him up, and he is able supernaturally to break chains Right? This is one tough dude, right? Snapping chains that they put on his hands and feet, breaking them like, like uh, twigs. Supernatural power. Um, the, the irony of that, though, is that he breaks the chains over his hands and feet to only be put in a stronger shackle that binds his soul. Right? He loses all independence and liberty and free will. And it says that they drive him out into the wilderness. So the power that he got, he got, and it gave him the, the, the ability to break every bond man put on him. But he was clueless to the bondage that it put him into. So they drive him out into the wilderness, and he is living where? In a beautiful garden with flowers and trees and butterflies and birds, right? No, he is driven out to live among the tombs. Live among the tombs. Um, any of you like hanging out in graveyards? I, I actually do. Uh, it's interesting to go look at the markers and kind of see a person's life, you know, and the things they write on their tombstone and the years they were born and died and how long they lived. It's, it's interesting in broad daylight and, you know, for a moment to pass through those places. I do not want to live there. Right? I don't want to hang out there day and night. Uh, this person uh, is driven to a place of death and loss and grief and despair. To, to live in the place that's the, the last place of hope for humanity, where there's visible evidence of the consequences of our sin. And I think it is a great picture of a, a person who is cut off from all relationships and companionship. He's cut off from community. He's cut off from fellowship. 
and he lives in the pinnacle of sadness, despair, and depression. Right? This guy is like at the extreme end of depression. Now, for those of you who wrestle with depression, I am not saying that if you are depressed, it means you are demon-possessed. Right? That's not necessarily true. But this is true. If you are oppressed by demons, you will be depressed. Right? If you are oppressed by evil forces, they do not bring joy into your life. Right? Spiritual oppression does not make you happy. It makes you depressed. And it can be uh, a cause and, and will always be the result of demon influence in our life, dragging us into sin and oppression and captivity. And finally, the third thing we see about his life is that he's really under total domination of these, of these spiritual forces. Um, he is completely taken captive and has lost all control of his own will over his life. It's interesting, God created us and gave us free will and free choice. It's a lot of what it means to be human. We have the choice to follow God or reject him, to walk in righteousness or sin, uh, and God gives us that freedom, and even when we sin, he doesn't take that freedom away from us. But Satan does. And as we walk in sin, as we give our life over to spiritual forces, they, they dominate us to the point that we lose free will. And here's a guy who has no control any longer over his own life. Um, the freedom that so many people think they have apart from Christ is not freedom, right? It is bondage. And they have lost the capacity to choose for themselves right from wrong. They can only do what the evil influences in their life force them to do. Right? Uh, so that's, you know, in, in, a, in a nutshell, a sum of the mission of, of the demons and Satan for our life. Uh, and, and we need to identify to some extent with this. Before we were in Christ, uh, can you identify with that demon influence in your life? I know for me, before I came to Christ, I, I was filled with guilt and anger and emptiness. Uh, I was very depressed, and I was very sad. Right? As a 13-year-old, 14-year-old, um, uh, we need to identify with that demon influence in our life before we came to Christ, right? and not forget where we were saved from, the bondage that we were saved out of. But also... We need to be aware of um, the ways Satan has tried to destroy us after Christ and, and is still trying. Or, you know, are we tuned into that? There are spiritual forces at work, and they don't leave us alone, right? Um, for me, it came this way. The demons would whisper in my ear constantly, and they still do. I mean, I'm not saying they, did, they stopped. Right? They're still whispering in my ear constantly. And these are the messages that the demons told me. You are worthless. Tim, you are no good. There's nothing about your life that God... Why would God love you? You are worthless. You're a horrible person. Right? And I would believe those lies, right? And they were discouraging. They were stripping away joy and life and community and fellowship. Uh, they often can lead me into depression if I listen to them and I, if I give them room and if I don't combat them with the truth of Christ. Um, so that's the mission of demons. Uh, but the great thing in this story is it's not really about what they do, but what they, the limits of what they do. And Jesus comes and says in verse 28, Jesus 
When the demon saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I beg you, do not torment me. Uh, Demons have a mission, but they also live in submission 100% to God and his authority. And you see this picture. Jesus steps out of the boat, and he's in this region. And we don't know how near uh, this guy is to where Jesus gets. It kind of gives the image that he steps out of the boat, and the guy's like right there. You know, whoa, hey, <laughs> welcoming committee. Uh, we don't know if, if Luke's kind of compressing this. But Jesus was on these guys' radar. And wherever he was, they, they sensed Jesus' nearness and presence. And they do not run. They do not flee away and hide They know they must come and bow before the one who has ultimate, final authority over their life. Jesus doesn't search search them out. He doesn't call them to himself. They come running to him, and they throw this man at Jesus' feet in a a posture of submission. Uh, Not in worship, in submission. And they recognize, and they know who Jesus is, right? Son of the Most High God. It is in Luke the first and most direct uh, statement of who Jesus is. His divine power as God comes from the demons because they know him. They know in the spiritual realm uh, this is the incarnate Son of God. And not only do they know him and know his power and authority over them as they beg him not to deal harshly with them, but secondly, they know very clearly their destiny. But this says, please don't throw us into the abyss. Uh, what is the abyss? Well, the abyss was the, the place of final, the final prison, really, of demons. It is their final doom to one day be cast down into the abyss. And it's, it's a contrast with their current, uh, their current environment. In Greek and, and in Jewish thought, the demons are said to rule the, the air. So the atmosphere, right, what we breathe, is the habitation of demons. Uh, And they're given freedom to roam as spirits in the air we breathe. So it is true that they are under every chair, right? The reality is they're everywhere. They they inhabit the space, and that's their domain. That's why Scripture calls them the powers of the principalities of of the air, right? This is their dominion right now. But one day they will be cast into the depths into what is pictured as the bottom of the sea. They're sucked out of the atmosphere, and they are plunged into the depths of the sea where they are buried far, far away, where they can no longer roam and torment and uh, uh, harass people. So they're worried that Jesus has showed up, and this is the day of judgment, and they're about to get thrown into jail, and they beg Jesus, please don't throw us into the abyss. Um, They know their final destiny. And so they come up with a creative plan that they think, you know, they think they're so clever. And they say, you know, pigs are unclean. Pigs are, you know, Jews don't like pigs. You're a Jew. <laughs> Send us to the pigs. Um, and Jesus grants permission. And immediately they flee out of this man and they invade this herd of, Mark tells us, there's about 2,000 pigs. Um, and, and, and so it is a story of, of Jesus outnumbered and outgunned, right, by a vast army of demons. By the way, a legion could be anywhere up to 6,000 Roman soldiers. 
We don't know exactly how many demons there were, probably somewhere between 1,000 and 6,000. Mark says there were 2,000 pigs, and apparently every pig got a demon or, or more, right? See this picture of Jesus way outnumbered. And I, I just I, I like to visualize this. Imagine Jesus, okay, Corral, he's got his six-shooter on, and it's Jesus facing off 2,000 demons, right? Is Jesus worried about this? Is Jesus panicked? Is Jesus wringing his hands? Is Jesus, you know, trying to get all their names down? Okay, I got the first three. Can you give me that list again, you know? Manitou and who, who, what, you know? No. They won't give him his name. Jesus doesn't care. Jesus is not panicked. Jesus is not sweating. Jesus does not raise his voice. He does not yell at them. He doesn't argue with them. He commands them, and they go. He exercises absolute 100% power and authority over them, and they obey him completely. Uh, Jesus shows up, and the demons must leave. Because where Christ is, who is Lord and power and authority over all, uh, the the demons will flee. They know they have no business with him. They fear his judgment and wrath. They don't hang around. Um, he commands, they bargain, he consents, and they flee. And that is his power and authority. And it's that easy. It's, it's that easy for Jesus. Just like he said to the storm, okay, done. He says to the demons, go. And it's done like that, right? It's easy for Jesus. It is easy, right? Um, there's some problems in this passage, I will, I will admit. And one of them is the whole pig thing, Right? Uh, Jesus seemingly consigns 2,000 helpless pigs to this kind of fatal end. He brings economic ruin on the community. 2,000 pigs is a lot of money. Um, there are all kinds of questions. Did, this, did the pigs stampede down because, um, you know, because the, they freak out when the demons come in? Did the demons drive them down and, and cause them to drive? We don't know. We don't, there's a lot of confusion about this. But we, what we do know, and there's no answers, I'm not even going to try, but we do know this. The pigs serve in this story to do a couple things. One, it proves there were a lot of demons, right? that Jesus didn't just cast out one, that there were at least thousands. right? So it, it demonstrates the scope and scale of Jesus, the reality of him being outnumbered. Uh, secondly, it proves that Jesus did indeed cast the demons out because it was visible. So visible that the, the herders watching the pigs knew exactly what had happened. Right? They got exactly what was going on here. Thirdly, it is a reminder that Jesus let them go. Right? He let them go. Does anybody have a problem with that? I have a problem with that. It's like, Jesus, you had them cornered. They were right there. You could have just ended them right there, and the world would be, you know, 2,000 demons fewer uh, to deal with. And you let them go, right? Because, you know, they, they were in the, in the pigs. I guarantee when the pigs died, the demons went off to the air, okay? They didn't, they didn't die with the pigs, right? Uh, they can jump bodies at will. Uh, they don't need a body to inhabit. They don't hang around, Right? They go back to the air to find some new victims. Um, well, uh, so what do we do with all this? Well, 
When we look at Jesus' strategy for dealing with demons, uh, Jesus' strategy is very clear. We would like Jesus' strategy to, to be this, that he came and in his power and authority, he captured the demons and imprisoned them, right? That he sent them to the abyss and that he rid the world of their evil influence and power over humanity. But that is exactly what Jesus did not do. In fact, he set, uh, he set the man free and he set the, he set the demons free, right? Uh, he didn't mess with them. He commanded them to go away, but he didn't really battle them directly. I'm sure they were thinking, whoo, we won that one, right? Why? Well, because Jesus' strategy is not at this point in time, not until the end and the final judgment, his strategy is not to vanquish the demons. I don't know why, right? Scripture is very... Uh, obscure, very limited on this topic, right? Why did God let them reign in the first place? If he has that much power and authority, why why did he ever let them hover and have free reign over the atmosphere of planet Earth? I don't know. But we are clear about what Jesus' strategy was. And Jesus' strategy was one of deliverance by discipleship. Uh, he chooses to engage this battle not by dealing with the demons, but by dealing with the prisoner. And Jesus sets forth to set him free. And Jesus had said that all the way back in Luke chapter 4 at the beginning of his ministry, quoting from Isaiah. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recover the sight of the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Jesus' strategy, his mission, is to do spiritual warfare, to engage the enemy by robbing from him disciples and making them followers of of Christ, followers of Jesus. Um, And that's exactly what Jesus does here. He sets this guy free. Um, He restores the humanity and dignity that was originally put in him when God made him in his image. Uh, The man has said, um, the people came out to see what happened, and they saw Jesus, and they found the man with the demons, and the demons had gone. And he was sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. Um, This guy's returned to humanity. He's clothed. He is sane. He's in his right mind. He's in conversation and relationship with Jesus. He's sitting in his feet, soaking in his teaching. He is uh, adoring Jesus. Uh, a few verses later, it says, The man whom the demons had, had, uh, had gone begged that he might be with Jesus and go with him. Right? His free will is restored. And he's now sitting there, not because Jesus has forced him, but because Jesus has called him, and his will has been returned. So this is Jesus' strategy. He vanquishes the demons. But what he really does is he sets this guy free. He restores him to God's original design. He gives him the opportunity for renewed companionship, to be engaged in the community, to uh, connect with Jesus, to be sane, to reflect about his life. 
uh, to make choices. Uh, and Jesus doesn't say, you better sit at my feet, and if you don't, I'm calling back the demons, right? No, he's sitting there because Jesus has given him free will. Do you want to be my... I'm calling you to discipleship. I'm calling you to follow me. It is your choice. It is your will to respond to that call or not. Um, he, he even deals with the crowd by honoring their free choice. You know, the crowd is freaked out by Jesus, and I love this. Um, for the crowd, better the demons you know than the God you don't, <laughs> right? Uh, they're happy with the demons because they, you know, they're comfortable. It's kind of like a dirty shirt that you wear all the time. You know, it stinks, smells bad, it's full of holes, it looks bad, but it's comfortable, right? The new shirt is stiff and, you know, the collar chokes you and you don't like the new, right? They're comfortable with the old demons and they reject the power of the one who could send them away. Unbelievable. But God, Jesus, honors their free choice in that, right? He lets them go. And I love the picture of this man sitting at Jesus' feet, uh, submitted to Jesus, longing to be near him, uh, soaking up his words and his teaching. We don't know how long it took, but it took a little bit of time for them to go get the crowd. And during that whole time, this guy is sitting at Jesus' feet, soaking it up, uh, developing a relationship with his Savior. And... uh, and, and the guy wants to go with Jesus. His will, his heart, his choice is to be close with Jesus. And as Jesus goes down and he starts to get in the boat, the guy says, please let me go with you. I want to be a disciple. I want to follow you. I want to go where you go. And one of the most incredible things in all of Scripture, Jesus says, no, you can't. Uh, wow, rejected, right? Of course, Jesus does not reject him from being a disciple. He just rejects him from going with him in the boat. And uh, this is like the shortest all-time discipleship commissioning, sending out missionary procedure. It took all of an hour, right? He gets saved. Jesus talks to him for an hour, gives him some clothes, commissions him, and sends him out to be a missionary, right? Wow. Like, can you do that? Like, the guy doesn't even know anything. He's not even a Jew. Okay, this guy is a Gentile. So he can't even fall back on the Old Testament, This guy knows nothing. And yet for Jesus, this is what discipleship is. First part of this chapter, we we went through the parable of the sower and the soils and the seed. And the conclusion of that was what? It's not just that you receive the word, it's that you practice it. Then we we go to the story of Jesus and his, his mother and brothers. Jesus says, these are my true mothers and brothers, those who, what? Who do the word, who do what I command. We come to this story, and here's a guy who gets saved, and an hour later, Jesus gives him a command, and will, the question is, will he be a doer of the word? Why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus not do some training, some, you know, some, event, some, uh, uh, some teaching? Why does he send him out? Well, I don't know. Scripture doesn't exactly say, but my, one of my theories is this. Uh, how did this guy come to be so possessed by demons? Well, we don't know. And it would be dangerous to speculate, you know, if he was in the occult or if he was worshiping demons. We don't know. But we do know the principle that always leads to demonization, to the power that demons have over us. And it's simply this. 
We give demons power over our life through disobedience. Okay? Uh, Ephesians 4 puts it this way. Do not sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down uh, while you are still angry. For anger gives a foothold to the devil. Sin, whether it's anger or lust, jealousy, selfishness, pride, whatever it is, our sin, our rebellion against God, always gives demonic forces a foothold. So I think uh, for Jesus, it was crucial that this guy not go get training, but have an opportunity to prove obedience. Right? First thing, doesn't matter how much you know, you know one thing right now, that Jesus has a boatload of power he cast out the demons, and, and that's what you know. And I'm commanding you to go tell that story to other people. If you really want to follow me, will you walk in obedience? Right? And the guy does. He says he goes out to the cities, and he proclaims all that Jesus has done for him. Uh, the word there for proclaim really literally is the word to preach, Right? So he got saved, been saved for a whole hour. He's now a preacher and a missionary and an evangelist. I love this, right? That's discipleship. Discipleship is calling people to a life of radical obedience to Christ. It is not a training program. It is not educating people about theology. It is not giving them a program where they know the Bible inside out and backwards. Now, are those things bad? No. We should be doing those things, right? Because the more we know, the more we know what to obey, the more we know how to follow Christ. But the point of it all is not knowledge. The point of it is obedience, right? That is discipleship. And for Jesus, that was all that was required of this guy. I saved you. Now, if you want to be my disciple, can you obey my commands? Will you do what I say? Um, discipleship is calling people to a life of total obedience to Jesus. Leadership training, church planning, evangelistic outreach, any of those things that, that, are, that are not focusing pe- people to walk in full obedience to Christ is not discipleship. Right? It's education. It's not discipleship. They're good, but if they're separated from the call to obedience, they're inadequate. Well, let me just give a couple practical things for our own life as we fight spiritual battles. What does this tell us about how we are to engage the enemy and the demons that are in the air around us and who honestly control the lives of the unsaved people all around us? Right? Your neighbors, people of Thailand who do not know Christ, are under demonic power and control to varying degrees but they are all in bondage to these forces. Uh, what do we do with that? Well, two things. Uh, two what I would call facts of life. Uh, first of all, the story is very clear that Jesus set the demons free. And uh, they're alive and well on planet Earth. And we do have to be aware of their presence and live as though they are out there and, and live as though they are against us. You know, in Ephesians, Paul says, put on the armor of God so that you can resist the flaming arrows of the evil one as they are shot at you. We need to live as though they are out there because they are and they're real and their power is a reality. Second thing, um, 
is that the crowd uh, rejected Jesus, right? Uh, the masses, for the most part, are more comfortable with their demons than with the Lord who is sovereign over everything. And the reality is people don't flock, even with this incredible miracle. Okay, this, is a, this, is a, this is a heavy miracle. Right? But they're not moved to faith. They're moved to fear, but not faith. Um, so what do we do? Well, I think two, two simple things we can do. First of all, uh, we need to know how to tell our story. Right? Jesus sends this guy out to tell his story to these very people who just rejected Jesus, right? Because Jesus knows that there's great power in this guy's testimony. Uh, It may take time, but in time, his preaching will change the hearts and minds and thinking of those who rejected Jesus. Um, You know, we often think that as we engage non-believers, we need to come up with brilliant arguments against false religion and false beliefs, or we need to explain in great detail who God is and all that he's done uh, with the theological implications of that, right? And we want to we overwhelm people with, with information, with truth, right? With everything that God's done for them. Um, but by this story, it seems that one of the most effective and powerful things we can do is just simply tell the story of what God has done in our life. That's why it's important that we go back and, and realize the, the grip that Satan had on us before we were in Christ and also the ways that he is still trying to influence and shape our life. Uh, we need to be very skilled at telling that story. You may say, well, you know, I just don't have a great story. I was not possessed by thousands of demons. I grew up in a Christian home. I got saved when I was two and a half years old, had the Bible memorized by the time I was 12, and, uh, you know, started preaching crusades at 14. I just don't have a great testimony. Well, you do, right? You may may need a dose of honesty in there somewhere, a dose of reality. And the truth is, we all struggle with spiritual battle. Uh, No matter what point we came to Christ, the demons are after you, right? And we need to identify the ways that, um, that, that both we have failed and that Christ has given victory. Right? That Christ has given victory. Maybe your great failure is not that you were a drug addict or a sex addict or that you murdered people. Maybe your great crime is that you were a self-righteous uh, preacher you know, who thought too much of yourself and thought you were better than everybody else. The Bible says that's actually also a great offense to God. Right? Just because it comes with a title and a label doesn't make it pretty to God, right? Those are Satan's schemes as well. We need to be able to tell our story of what God is doing in our life, past, present, and future as he works in our life. We need to create a culture where where telling your story is normal and important. You know, at home, are you helping your kids know how to tell their story? At the table, do you tell your story? Do you share in small groups in a church and in your community what God has done in your life? Jesus Jesus said, go and tell them all that God has done in your life. That should be one of the favorite things that we like to talk about ourselves. And how much better when we're talking about ourselves in terms of what God has done in our life. Um, We need to prepare our story. 
You need to practice telling it and get feedback. And then pray earnestly for opportunities to share it, to share with others what God has done in our life. Um, Are we intentional about telling our story and asking others to tell the story of God's work in their life? So that's the first thing. Second thing, real quick, we need to be committed to making disciples. The real battle against spiritual forces is not engaging demons, casting them out, exercising them, binding them, casting them down, all the other great deliverance terminology. Okay? The call is discipleship. And here's the truth. When this guy gave his life to Christ and walked in obedience, the demons were gone. He was set free. They no longer had power to uh, dominate him like they had before. They had to attack now from a great distance. That's why they had to use fiery arrows. They couldn't get close enough with a hatchet. They'd use long-range weapons, right? Because they're limited in their power now. Uh, That's how we overcome our enemy, by teaching people to walk in obedience, Uh, by drawing. and, And we should be people who bear God's image in our character. We should be people who live in community, who share our lives together in fellowship around what Christ has done in our life whether that means being a part of a small group, um, men's group or women's group. We have those. And Tom is the guy to, Tom Miyakawa is the guy to contact if you want to join a, a home group or small group so that you can be more a part of being discipled in community. Uh, we need to be people who love to sit at Jesus' feet, who long to be near him. Uh, most of all, people who walk in obedience and are teaching and leading others, our children, Uh, our students, our friends, our peers, those we work with, how to walk in obedience to Christ. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.